Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Spencer Gray. Spencer has been involved in over $1 billion in transactions since buying his first rental property in 2006. His company, Gray Capital, focuses on value-add multifamily, core and core plus multifamily, and opportunistic commercial real estate. So thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, Charles. Been looking forward to coming on. So give us a little bit on your background prior to starting, uh, both personally and professionally, prior to uh, starting to invest in real estate. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I've been investing in real estate, you know, like you said, since about, you know, since uh, 2006. Um, and that was, you know, just prior to me graduating high school. So, you know, I've been doing it for quite a while. Um, you know, I kind of stumbled into doing that, though. I didn't wasn't really setting out to be a real estate investor. I got kind of dragged in from a friend who was doing mm -hmm. it, who was really his father was doing it, and he was helping his dad and needed a partner. Um, and what that really did is it planted that first seed of, you know, really opening up to the idea of real estate investing um, as an option and as a possibility, because you know everyone knows that there are real estate investors out there, but until you kind of get a little bit of a taste of it and see that it's real, it, it can seem like you know maybe it's challenging or maybe it's too good to be true because you know mm -hmm. maybe you've heard a horror story of you, know, you heard a get rich quick scheme, um, but to me it was it, it became a, a real thing, and even though that project wasn't really very successful. We didn't make any money on it because, you know, this was just prior to the Great Recession. Credit started getting tightening up um, when we were trying to actually sell the property. And we kind of were relying on those, um, you know, kind of those ninja loans, those no income verified um, loans that people could get back in, you know, the the mid 2000s to, as our end buyer. So we ended up turning it, turn it into a rental. But so our first deal kind of had problems and things that we had to work out. I had learned things about partnerships. You know, my partner, my friend wasn't, he's a great guy, but he really wasn't present in the deal. And I ended up yeah. kind of running the mm -hmm. whole thing. So I learned a few lessons. But then kind of fast forward because, you know, I didn't go into full-time real estate investing, you know, at that point. I went off this, went off this college. Um, I, was, I was really passionate about, um, you know, two things. And that was, you know, being an entrepreneur and I was passionate about music and music production. And so I went to music school at Indiana University, um, wanting to get out, kind of work in the music business, um, whether that was being a recording engineer, um, you know, working for, you know, a music distributor. Um, and, and so I did that, graduated, moved out to New York City, um, you know, working in recording studios, um, working for media distribution companies, a freelancer, um, you know, working for audible.com, you know, editing audiobooks, all kinds of stuff. And try, but trying to kind of build out my own business doing that. And I, I, I love, I love music and I love doing it, but I was getting burned out because I wasn't really doing what I had really set out to do. But more importantly, the entrepreneurial side of me, because as I'm in the real world, you know, trying to make money. I, I couldn't put a business plan together that made sense to me to mm -hmm. actually kind of chart a course. And so I started kind of opening up my, my, my mind and saying, what else is out there? I want to, I want to build a business. I don't want to just do something if there's no real traction there. And, and so I, that led me to, you know, to continue to flip houses. Um, and then also I started a business um, with a friend and my now wife, where we, um, we started a small hop farm in Indiana to sell locally grown hops to craft brewers, very quickly got into a business of brokering hops from farmer, uh, industri 
like really actual commercial farmers out in Washington, Oregon to distribute to uh, craft brewers across the country. Um, that ended up being quite successful. We started exporting hops to all 50 states internationally, ended up selling that business in about 2015. And I was at a point where, you know, I wasn't done. I wanted kind of that. I want, I was looking for that next opportunity, that next business and buy and hold multifamily kept coming up. And so I took a deep dive, educating myself as much as possible, reading books, getting on forums, networking. And that led um, me to have the opportunity to partner with someone who was a couple steps ahead of where I was, was already syndicating projects, even though I didn't really know what a syndication was at the time. I was able to basically say, you know, I want to participate with you because I had figured out that I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and, but I said, you know, I wanted to kind of be in the trenches and learn from you. And so I ended up co-sponsoring projects with him. Um, we eventually went on to co-sponsor um, about 15 um, different syndications with that operator. We still co-sponsor and co-GP projects with, uh, with that group. Um, then about 2018 or so, we said, okay, we, we've got a lot of experience now. We know what we're doing, um, but we want to do things a little bit different than our partner is doing. And so we started doing our own projects, um, becoming the lead sponsor and syndicating our own deals. And, um, and, you know, kind of the, doing the rest is his history. We've kind of built out our own firm, our own team, and, uh, you know, we're focusing on our own acquisitions, you know, primarily in the Midwestern United States. And like you said, value add and, and core plus are, are our two main focuses. Nice. The, um, I want to step back just a couple, couple steps. There is, uh, tell us about your first multifamily real estate investment yep. and what you're doing with it. Um, how'd it go? What happened? How'd you source it? Yep. So the first multifamily investment was a, a co-sponsorship with this partner in Indianapolis. Um, it was, uh, I believe, a 220 unit um, C-class value add property mm -hmm. um, in Indianapolis, kind of in the Speedway neighborhood. So it's near the kind of the racetrack where they do the Indy 500 every year. Um, and it needed a lot of work. It had been neglected um, really for the past several decades. Um, the last owner really didn't put the resources into it that it needed. And so it needed, you know, every single unit needed to be updated, incredible amount of exterior, exterior deferred maintenance. Um, but, you know, we got it at a pretty good basis. I think we bought it at that time for like 43 or 45,000, you know, per door. Mm. Um, so, you know, a relatively good basis. Um, you know, we put a 223 HUD 223F loan on it, um, which is able to, you know, finance, you know, quite a bit of, of the construction as well. Um, and so it was a challenging project, though. So it was, you know, my first multifamily project. It was the biggest project that my partner had done at the time, certainly the largest rehab. And it was a property that, um, you know, every time you go in to fix one thing, three other things would break. And so it, it just there was so much work that needed to be done on the interiors, you know, the pool cracks, so many things kept going wrong that in a sense were outside of our control. Um, but that gave us a really kind of good lesson. One, you know, really, you know, be, you know, you have to really watch the property that you're going to be going into. If it does have, you know, a lot of fit, uh, you know, visible deferred maintenance, there's going to be more that's not visible mm -hmm. once you get into that yeah. project. And so, you know, whatever capital you think you need for renovations, you need to have a very, very hefty contingency um, on top of that. And so really to overcapitalize, um, really any project, um, because you never know what's going to happen. It's a way to kind of mitigate risk and de-risk. Um, but especially if you're doing a major value add for an older property, you know, this was built in 1960, um, 68, I believe, 
you know, some things are going to be breaking and you're not going to know. I mean, you'll, when you're doing due diligence on a property, you know, you may have, you know, 30 days, but really you're going to be only in there for a couple of days doing a, a good an inspection. Even if you walk every unit, I mean, so yeah. you usually have one to two days to walk every single unit and you're usually, you know, checking out, you know, what's in each unit, what are the appliances, the condition, but, you know, to be able to formulate that full business plan to exactly know how many dollars you're going to need, it can be, you know, there's a lot of, you know, educated guessing that goes on in building out that budget. And so just to overcapitalize to say, okay, you know, we believe we need call it a million dollars. Well, you know, let's bring on, you know, another $250,000, maybe even half a million, depending on kind of the scope of the project, um, you know, in just extra contingency, you know, to a point where, you know, you don't want to um, reduce returns because, you know, the more um, equity you bring on, you know, those returns are going to go down, but we got to follow the first rule of, you know, not losing money and, and um, preserving principle. And so if you can't execute the business plan in a responsible way, then you need, probably need to readdress your business plan. So the lesson really was to overcapitalize, um, prepare, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Um, the result of that though was, you know, we were able to sell the deal um, for, you know, over, I think it was a 25% IRR ended up being a four-year hold. So, you know, ended up being a great project, but there were many, many bumps in the road to kind of get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that. How hard was it to get, uh, cause we never talk about HUD, HUD yep. loans on this. Program. I know, but no one does. <laughs> uh, tell us about that. I mean, that's just kind of a, a, not many people would go down that route and you can kind of explain probably why in your experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of headache to get one of these HUD 223F loans. Now it's, I think it's worth it for the right project. It's not right for every project. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are interested in a long-term hold, so you're really thinking at least seven years, really seven to 10 year timeframe, um, a HUD 223F loan is a great program um, because it's a, it's a non-recourse loan. It can typically go up to 85% of the cost of the project. It um, a thirty-five year term, thirty-five year amortization, and you know, and so that provides you know an incredible, um, great option because mm -hmm. even compared to an interest-only loan, which these HUD is not interest-only, but your debt service can often be kind of similar compared to like an agency mm -hmm. interest-only product based on the amount of amortization, getting that thirty-five year term. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to lock in, also the interest rates are you know incredibly low, lower than agency typically, you know, for fixed rate. Typically, the rates are lower. A fixed rate HUD loan is often lower than a variable rate agency product. Um, so I mean, we're getting ready to lock in another HUD loan now. We're being quoted in kind of the 2.2% range. Wow. Um, so now here's the other side. Um, it's an incredibly long process. You, it's, you can't close on a HUD loan. You have to close on a bridge loan um, with a lender who understands the HUD process that can properly size the HUD takeout. So you have to go. So there's another loan that you have to put in place when you close while you're starting the process to go on to HUD, the HUD process can take, we were told, they say four to six months, but it can take all the way up to a year. COVID has completely backlogged all of the HUD offices. So it's, it takes, I mean, we've been working on one now for eight months and we're hopefully going to be closing here in the next you know, month or two. Um, so it's a long process. It's a lot of documentation. It's a lot of paperwork. And then there's also a few strings attached. Um, so for one, there's a um, surplus cash flow calculation um, where, so if you're going to issue a distribution, you have to meet certain reserve requirements before you can distribute um, from that project. Compared to Fannie or Freddie, you know, it's your bank account, you can do what you want. Um, also, there's an annual audit that, that you have to do 
to comply with HUD. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, and so, and then there's like, you know, inspections, you know, react inspections, which you have similar inspections for agency um, products as well. And so it, it, it's a flip side though, for as an investor, I kind of like some of those covenants of, you know, I don't mind the project being audited by HUD, make sure the operator is doing the right thing. Um, you know, I don't, I would like, you know, maybe to distribute, you know, more than the surplus mm -hmm. cash flow would allow, but at the same time, you know, you're following that first rule and you're preserving principle. You're the, you know, it's ensuring that you've got enough cash in the deal to, you know, cover debt service, cover repairs. Um, so make sure the deal is very healthy, which makes you overcapitalize. Um, but if, you know, if the deal can, can support, you know, those things, it can be incredibly attractive for, you know, a long-term um, hold. So when we're looking at more of our core plus acquisitions or even a core acquisition, that's where often it makes sense I'm looking at HUD because knowing that this is going to be, you know, like a longer term cash flow play, um, it can be, you know, a really attractive route to go. When uh, there's two distributions that are allowed per year with that? Correct. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Semi-annual distributions. That's the, one of the other covenants. Um, so you can't do monthly distributions, can't even do quarterly. It's, you know, two distributions a year, which most investors, you know, so a lot of investors uh, prefer monthly or quarterly distributions. Mm -hmm. Once you explain the process, um, we haven't had much you kind of push back from our investors that kind of understand, you know, the benefits of the HUD loan. And so they're yeah. they're OK with it. Yeah. Getting that debt just over two um, percent. Yeah. And when you sold that property, did the buyer assume that loan? Um, they did not assume they did not assume that loan. Um, so we, we've done a couple HUD assumptions um, on the buy side, um, but they they just they bought it and we had you can pay a couple extra basis points to have a reduced prepayment penalty. Um, okay. because that's the other piece. There's, there's a rather steep step down prepayment penalty. Um, and we had the price had appreciated to a point um, and we had paid those extra bips for a reduced prepayment penalty where we could we, we, it was still a you know, very profitable sale, even having to pay that, that prepayment. Nice. Okay. Awesome. That's a, that's quite the deal for your first deal out yeah. there. And um, so what is your firm right now targeting? I mean, you guys are targeting a ton of different asset classes within real estate. When I was preparing for this, uh, what is your current acquisition criteria and strategy? Yeah. You know, so, you know, we've invested in quite a few different asset classes, um, you know, whether it's been a, you know, lead sponsor, co-sponsor, or we've just been a more of a limited partner on some projects. What Great Capital is focused on is, you know, is really 100% is multifamily acquisitions right now. Um, so we have two investment silos. One is a value add silo where we're typically looking at um, newer properties, you know, when I say newer, I'm talking like mid eighties to kind of early two thousands, um, for that needs a value add, um, need a lift or a reposition, typically not extremely heavy value adds. We really prefer stabilized assets that we can really improve because we're focused on cash flow, And so we want to be able to have some degree of cash flow at acquisition. Um, and so, but our other investment silo is our, our core and core plus um, silo. And so these are much newer properties um, that don't need significant renovations. They may need minor, um, very light value add um, uh, business plans, um, but oftentimes it's more of operational efficiencies. Um, mm -hmm. And so these, these properties could be built kind of mid 2000, kind of mid 2000s all the way up to, you know, essentially, um, you know, brand new. And, you know, we feel, you know, like when investors are looking at not investing in apartments, we want people to take a, an approach of looking at it 
as building a portfolio. We don't want you to invest in just one deal and really not just with one operator in one geographic region. We need to build a diversified portfolio. And we feel like different strategies of, you know, more workforce housing, which is kind of usually most value add deals fall in that category, as well as more core and core plus, which are typically kind of renters by um, choice rather than workforce housing, which is renters by necessity. It allows you to diversify to do different um, income demographics because different income demographics kind of behave differently differently in different um, stages of the economy and so we want to build you know as most as a robust portfolio as possible and having exposure to those different income brackets uh, we feel you know really diverses, diversifies one's portfolio and allows to um, mitigate risk so I think everybody like understands the value add model um, yeah. you know we find a property it's it's rents for uh, you know, identical unit rents for twelve hundred next door. This one yep. rents for a thousand. We do, it, but it's not updated. We update it. We raise the rent. Uh, talk about finding efficiencies. Give me some examples um, of efficiencies you would find in a core core plus. So we're talking, you know, B B plus, may, you know, properties that are fifteen years old, twenty years old. What kind of inefficiencies are you finding that mm -hmm. are like, you know, you're kind of like licking your shops when you're looking through underwriting and you see what's going on. So I, I've got a good one. And so this is a deal that we, we closed on just la last year in dis December of 2020, 2018 construction. Um, beautiful new development, class A, luxury asset. If you looked at the pictures, you would say there's no way this deal cash flows. The mm -hmm. returns on this thing are going to be so thin. Because, you know, how many times you've probably seen a package come up, new deal, and you're like, yeah, it looks yeah. great, but like, hey, it's not going to cash enough for me. Most other buyers thought the same thing. When we took a look at it, we were able to find so much meat on the bone because it had been built by a merchant developer who still owned it. Their business plan is to get it leased up as quickly as possible and to flip it out. Wow. They're not trying to hold on to it. Mm. So the amount of concessions that they were offering, the, the marketing budget, their administrative budget, the payroll that they were paying was so over market. We were able to cut $300,000 in just concessions in the wow. first two months annualized in the first two months of ownership. We're able to cut over $75,000 in marketing. We were able to cut almost 100,000 in admin budget. Um, we've been able to uh, dial the payroll in because they had some specialists they had you know, flown in that had you know, payroll that was twice the, mm -hmm. the rate of you know, normal you know, manager. So we were able to bring in so many efficiencies not only that, the rents were under market because they were trying to get it leased up. Yeah. So they weren't pushing mar uh, they weren't pushing rents. We're increasing rents $100 on some units. We've already increased rents 3%, um, just total, not annualized, 3% on the entire property. Annualized, it's a 12% you know, mm. rent increase on the asset. Again, this is 2018 construction. Wow. We perform at being able to produce 8% cash on cash from the gate. We're getting ready to close on a HUD loan, 35-year term, 35-year amortization. The rate's going to be, you know, in you know, 2.3, 2.4% that we're locking in for 35 years, which is lower than what we underwrote. It's going to create an additional $100,000 of cash flow because the difference in the interest rate. So now we're going to be able to be producing double-digit cash-on-cash returns from an A-class, brand-new luxury asset, which is higher returns than the 70s vintage, 80s, and 90s mm -hmm. vintage yeah. value-add deals that we've been underwriting all year that produce, you know, low teen IRRs and low cash on cash, a huge renovation risk or huge, yeah. you know, because if there's a major renovation, there's significant amount of risk. You're going up the risk spectrum with the idea you're going to be compensated for a nice return. 
we scratch our heads when we see a major value add project that you know pencils out a 13%, 14% IRR, you're taking a significant amount of risk, mm-hmm. but you're not being compensated for it. Um, and so that's an example, most recent example. And not every deal is like that. Not every class A deal is like that. Most, a lot of them don't cash flow, but I think many assume that they won't, so they don't try. And also I think there's a little bit of an echo chamber. Everyone's talking about value add deals. We love value add deals too when they make sense. But when you pigeonhole yourself and saying this is the only strategy that I'm going to look at, yeah, it also is, you know, the art of the possible because okay, you know, that deal is a sixty million dollar deal. Most people are looking at you know smaller projects, which is are understandable because they're looking at you know what can I pay for, you know, what can my investor base produce right now. I'll tell you at that time we didn't have all the money you know figured out. It was a matter of you know putting the team together, having the networks in place. And you know, being confident in you know the business plan, and um, so one of my director of acquisitions brought the deal for me. I'm like, I don't know if we can raise twelve million dollars. I think we can. We're going to try, um, and it was a challenge. But we said, let's let's give it a shot. And you know, we had it raised in about three weeks. So nice. it was such an attractive project. Were the tenants subpar that were in there because the guy was just going crazy leasing up? No, not not that bad. I mean, it's good. Very yeah. professional professional firm actually the the average income at the property was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars so mm. you know very strong yeah. um nice. resident base there were a handful of there there were a handful of residents that were not not the best um one actually sued like the previous manager while we were in the process of closing a fair housing complaint completely bs um yeah. got got thrown out they she was more of a less an amb- ambulance chaser we kind of did some research um so there were maybe two but yeah. find that on any deal and you're going to yeah. find high quality, low quality residents kind of even at a class. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like when you're looking at, in a town to buy, there's one part of town where you can't afford and there's one town where you don't want to move to. So exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. what town it is, where it is anywhere. Yeah. Um, so you guys got $1 billion worth of assets under management. What are some of the best ways you have found to uh, find nurture and keep investors? Obviously you just raised $12 million for that yeah. deal. Yeah. Well, and and just and just to qualify, so we don't have a billion dollars of assets under management. That's close to it's closer to half a billion. But we've we've got we've done about a billion, a little okay. over a billion dollars worth of deals. Um, you know, not only bringing on investors, but you know, maintaining them is huge. I mean, obviously, the first step is if you're producing results. I mean, that that's going to be um, the most effective way of to keep investors. If you're doing deals that work. Um, but then, you know, it's doing what you say you're going to do. So, you know, if you're going to be, say you're going to communicate at whatever rate monthly, quarterly, you, know, you need to be communicating at that rate, staying in touch while not being annoying, you know, don't mm-hmm. be sending out emails of just saying, Hey, literally we're here. And, you know, not really useful information, you're not adding value, but communicating in a way that you are adding value and, you know, sending information that's going to be interesting to those investors of, you know, hey, here's an article that just came out and you know, it's about our deal. I just want to make sure that you saw it or, hey, did you, did you see this is going on in the market? Because, you know, investors, they're they're passionate about this just like we are and they want to know um, what's going on and they want to stay up to date. But, you know, you don't want to, um, you, know, you know, pester them too much. So it's it's mm-hmm. adding value, staying in touch, communicating. Um, but at the end of the day, kind of results matter more than anything. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. So as you guys grow your business, what are some of the challenges you uh, have faced or you face currently? Um, you, know, you know, the challenge we're facing right now is, you know, the market's moving so fast and trying to stay on top of it and finding the balance between um, being reasonable in our assumptions and, you know, um, being, you know, uh, 
conservative in a sense that, you know, again, we want to preserve principle and mm-hmm. you never not lose money. But at the same time, uh, you know, inflation's at you know over 5%, hassle, household formations at a multi-decade high, rents are growing in, in our markets of, you know, anywhere from between 7 and 14%. And so, you know, you can't, you know, use the same assumptions you were using in 2019 for real estate in 2021. Um, but at, at the same time, you can easily overshoot that because you can't underwrite you know, five to twelve percent yeah. rent growth every mm-hmm. single year. Maybe you're going to get it in this year, and we've I think we're we've already gotten it. Maybe be more by the end of the year. Um, but you know, we're but so you have to find that balance of um, find the balance between you know being aggressive enough, but at the same time, you know, sticking to fundamentals. Right. Okay. What are common mistakes you see other real estate investors make? So one of the most common mistakes I see investors make is in that transition from taking theory into actual practice of, you know, they've been, you know, learning about real estate investing, multifamily, they're trying to figure out how to do their first deal. Um, But to get that first deal is is such a a leap and it's a leap of Mm -hmm. faith. And, but once you, because once you do that first deal, the rest becomes, you know, much easier. You you really get some momentum very quickly. You know, you hear a lot of people like like Michael Blanc will talk about the law of the first deal. You do one deal, and you're going to do two deals right after that, and, and that is often the case. I've seen that many many times happen to myself multiple times. Whether it's co-sponsored deal, then doing our own deal is one deal, then bam, bam, bam. Um, so, but it's hard to kind of put together that business plan without really having some experience. And so, in people, I find new investors they don't reach out and to leverage others experience and whether that's um you know bring someone on you know kind of as a coach or a consultant or that could be you know partnering um as a co-sponsor or that could just be investing as a limited partner and just getting some of that real world experience seeing how a deal is actually put together and really with someone with some experience to say you know okay you know yeah that's what you're going to read in the books Right, so you, you heard in a podcast, well, you know, that book was written five years ago. That's not where the market is right now. This is just the reality of the market itself. And if you want to participate, this is what you need to do. Because if you, if you believe in kind of the thesis around housing and multifamily investing, and it's, it's very solid, I mean, especially right now, I mean, there's a complete imbalance of supply and demand for housing, especially somewhat affordable housing. You need to participate in that industry in this in this investment kind of thesis in this ecosystem so how do you get in you have to get started and you it may take a leap of faith because you know your book may say you need to buy a property at an eight percent cap rate well you're not buying a property at an eight percent cap rate and if you do that level of return that cap rate that that means that's indicative of the level of risk in the project Mm. and so even going for a lower cap rate project that is going to be lower risk, but the deal actually might work, which that that is kind of the opposite of what I hear from a lot of first time investors mm-hmm. saying they're like, well, I'm looking for a seven cap or I'm looking for an eight cap, which is yeah. really the wrong way to look at it, especially in today's market where cap rates, they're really not very useful today. Now, mm-hmm. they may be more useful in a couple of years ago, but people are buying cap rate, buying deals at three caps and four caps. And it's not because they're going to let it sit there. It's because they've got they've got a business plan. Um, to kind of get there to a more stabilized, um, you know, kind of operating budget. 
So yeah, yeah, that's definitely a new thing with uh, new investors. They're always asking about cap rates, and they have a cash on cash in mind, and it's usually very high. And they have a cap rate in mind, which is usually very high as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as we're finishing up here, what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Um, well, I think partnership, being open to partnerships, mm -hmm. open to collaboration. Um, yeah, I if I hadn't partnered um, with that one partner on that first deal, um, you know, uh, you know, who, who knows what the future would have would have held and then being persistent because i had to keep being persistent in order just to have that meeting and to be networking to get that introduction to make that happen and so if you're showing up you know like they say you know the most people just don't even show up if you're just showing up if you're there if you're networking if you're learning if you're making offers um, you know, it can be incremental progress, but if you keep showing up, things are going to happen. And all of a sudden you're going to find yourself partnering on a big deal, much larger than you ever thought that you could take down. And it's okay if you don't know everything, um, you just need to surround yourself with folks that do. Yeah. That's what happened on my first deal with, uh, with our group. It was just, uh, I had no idea. I was just networking with someone and then they're like, Hey, we have this deal. And you're like, Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it. So, um, so how can our listeners learn more about you and your business, Spencer? Yeah, so yeah, our website's greatcapitalllc.com. Um, you know, we have a great newsletter. Um, I'm really proud of that the team puts together. Um, it basically aggregates um, every new research report and article on the multifamily industry and real estate um, and the economy. So hop onto our website, greatcapitalllc.com. You can check that out. Um, we've also we built a new um, a, a new service. It's, it's called the Great Report greatreport.com it is an extension of the newsletter in a sense where it's an aggregator um we have like a ton of rss feeds virtual assistants kind of scraping the web i'm finding all of this research and data i'm revolving the multifamily industry in real estate um so it's greatreport.com then you know you can find me on linkedin shoot me an email spencer at greatcapitallc.com um but yeah so just you can just google us we'll pop up Okay. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I will put links into the show notes and looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Absolutely, Charles. Really appreciate you having me on. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.